Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? See you this morning. My name is Josh and uh, one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Really glad that you can be with us too this morning. Hey, I wonder, uh, have you ever found yourself in trouble? Anybody? Yeah, uh, first service, everybody laughed. So this must be the good, the good crew. Um, so I'll tell you a story. You know, honestly, growing up as a kid, I was a pretty compliant kid. I really didn't get into a lot of trouble. But there's one uh, situation that comes to my mind right away as I think about this. I, I was probably four or five years old. I was either in preschool or kindergarten and went with, with my dad to uh, the sub-state basketball game. We were playing in Spencer, Iowa, and on our way to state. And went with him to the game. And I can remember hanging out, running around with some of my friends, it was a bigger gym, you know, and they had kind of a balcony and uh, we were on the end of the court and balcony kind of by one of the entrances and uh, a buddy of mine, he kept kind of leaning over the edge and like dropping something on one of the guys down below and then ducking out of the way, we'd all move back and kind of laugh, you know, and the guy would look around what's going on and did it. So I, eventually I decided I was going to get in on the fun and I had one of those uh, root beer barrels in my mouth, you know, what I'm talking about the little candies and so I kind of leaned over and I let it go out of my mouth. It didn't land on the guy, it just it hit the ground, but I wasn't smart enough to move. I stayed there, and the guy turned around and he looked up, and so I was the one. I was the face he had for all of this stuff falling on him, and he looks up at me, yells at me, get down here, and all I remember is taking off running and going and hiding, sitting by my dad, who was a pretty big guy, and I never got in trouble. But I felt the trouble. You know what I mean? And so uh, how about you though, when you get in trouble? Uh, if I would've gotten in trouble for that, it would've been totally for the wrong reasons, wouldn't it? I would've deserved that trouble. But have you noticed sometimes when you follow Jesus, you end up in trouble uh, simply for following him, simply for being obedient, simply for uh, uh, speaking of him or doing what he tells you to do. That's the kind of trouble we're gonna talk about this morning and how to be joyful when that trouble comes. And so with that, let me pray. We're gonna be in Acts chapter five and we're gonna see the apostles and the early church in that kind of trouble today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace to us and uh, your compassion and your mercy and your empathy. Lord, you know what it's like to be human and uh, to live and go through life and face uh, opposition and, and trouble and persecution for your faith. Uh, you, you know what it's like to be us. And so uh, thank you for that. And uh, uh, thank you too, you don't leave us alone in it, but you've sent your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we pray today, you'd encourage our hearts, you'd teach us, teach me even as I teach your word. Let my words be your own. 
and might we leave changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you got your Bible, open up with me to, uh, to Acts chapter five. And Acts chapter five, we're gonna start in verse 12. Uh, just to give you a, a little review where we're picking this up is we've been working through the story of the early church. Last Sunday, we saw some great unity in the church, but we also saw some threats to that unity in the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. And when, when they lied to God, uh, they paid for it with their life. Well, uh, after that sign, uh, Luke gives a little summary statement of everything happening in the early church. And he says this, he says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, meaning that that was a sign to them too, what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Solomon's portico is just this uh, colonnade surrounding the Temple Mount. And it's just where the early church often met. That's where they would gather to, to hear teaching and to worship and to pray. And it was one of the places they would meet for that. And Sol sometimes it's called Solomon's porch, your translation might say. But after everything that had happened to Annas and Ananias and Sapphira, while the apostles were gathered there, and it says none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. I think none of the rest here, it could refer to unbelievers who didn't want to join their ranks. I think it's likely that it actually refers to, and I won't bore you with why, but that it actually refers to some believers who just, they were a little skittish now. To, to join him in this place after some of the threats that had happened, after Peter and John being arrested, after Ananias and Sapphira's death. So they just stayed home and watched the live stream, basically. They didn't join him. In verse 14, part of why I think this is that then there were, there were people who came to faith. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and they laid them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them and heal them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. That's some pretty amazing things happening in the early church, isn't it? When you read it, you just kind of go, wow, that's incredible. And you, signs and wonders, Peter's shadow, healing people, everyone getting healed. Do you read that sometimes and think, well, so should those same things be happening all the time in, in our church too? Well, we talked about this. Let's try to answer that question. We talked about this early in the series, this idea of prescription and description. Is a passage descriptive or is it prescriptive? Uh, here's what I mean by that, and we're gonna take a little detour this morning and then come back to the text. A passage that's descriptive, it simply records or describes what happened. Here's what happened. That's what a descriptive passage does. A prescriptive passage, on the other hand, uh, teaches something that should happen. It prescribes a certain action, a certain event to take place in a certain way. Descriptive passages, when we read them, we should uh, find some principles then for what we should do uh, out of that story. A, a prescriptive passage, on the other hand, will tell us exactly what we should do. So prescriptive, uh, 10 commandments, don't kill. Okay, pretty clear. 
don't kill people, right? But how do you know when a passage isn't, and it's not clear if it's descriptive or prescriptive, kind of like this one here. Because if, if you take a passage that's merely descriptive and make it prescriptive, I'm doing so far not tripping over my words because they rhyme, you can really come away with some really errant thinking about how to live the Christian life, can't you? And you can do some weird things as a church. Let me give you an example. Let's say uh, David and Goliath. You familiar with that story? Many of us uh, probably are. David and Goliath. uh, Goliath comes out, this big hulk of a man, and he's blaspheming God. He's speaking evil against him, and he's taunting God's people. And so what does David do? 1 Samuel 17, he, he goes over, he grabs five stones and a sling and he, he goes out to battle with him. He slings the one stone, drills Goliath, he falls down and David cuts his head off. Now, if that's merely descriptive, which by the way it is, then we can uh, learn from that passage to, to trust God in the face of things that seem totally overwhelming and that he'll help us and provide a way out. But if it's prescriptive, if we take it as prescriptive wrongly, then anytime somebody comes speaking against God, we're gonna think, well, I gotta get a sling, I gotta get a stone, I gotta throw it at him, and then I gotta behead the guy. Probably not a good plan. And clearly not what scripture's teaching us, right? I'll give you another example, even from the book of Acts. The, the book of Acts talks a lot about Christians meeting in homes together. Well, uh, it's describing what happened, but if we take it as prescriptive, then, and some have, they would say that, well, really the church should only meet in homes, except that every time it describes the church meeting in homes, it never prescribes that this is how you must meet. There's freedom. They didn't have buildings like this or freedom to be able to meet like we do, and so they met in homes. And other places in the world today, they don't have the freedom we have, and so... They meet in people's homes. We still meet in people's homes if you're in a life group, right? But it's not prescriptive that that's the only way to do it. Does that make sense? And so this passage this morning, I would commend to you as a descriptive passage. It's describing what happened in the early church. Well, how do I know? How do you know that? Well, again, the reason I'm taking you down this rabbit trail to talk about this a bit is because I want you to be able to read God's word and understand it and unpack it for yourself. Not just rely on coming to church and hearing it on a Sunday morning. I want you to be able to read it and know what it says. So here's some ways, uh, some principles to, to, to go through and figure out is a passage descriptive or prescriptive? I'll give you three. I could give you more, but I'll give you three this morning. Um, first off, God's word consists of a lot of different types of literature. So you need to determine what type of literature you're reading when you read that passage. You're like, what are you talking about, Josh? I thought it was the Bible. That's the type of literature, isn't it? Well, true. But within the Bible, there's different types of writing. There's historical narrative. There's prophecy. There's letters that are written to churches and to individuals. Uh, There's poetry and wisdom literature. And each of them use different methods of writing. So if you, you gotta understand what type of literature you're reading. Well, Acts is historical narrative. It's a story of what happened in history. And historical narrative, by definition, is descriptive. It's describing what happened. But there's parts of it still that, that are prescriptive, that give commands. 
but we should look at it as, as descriptive and pull out principles from it of what happened. A second clue to consider is just culture. Our culture is a lot different than biblical culture, right? In, in the day and age we live, the other side of the world we live on, there's differences, neither good or bad, just different. And so uh, this gets a little fuzzier though when you look at culture. So first look at type of literature and then look at the third one I'm gonna give you here in a second. But an example of this in terms of culture, uh, Jesus, when he celebrates the Lord's Supper, when he celebrates Passover with his disciples, right? And tells them, do this in remembrance of me. One of the first things he does that night is wash their feet. So every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, should we be washing each other's feet? I don't know. What do you think? Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Obeying and and celebrating Lord's Supper is prescriptive for sure, but it's descriptive, I think, that aspect of it because why would they do that? Well, look at the culture. They they walked around in sandals and bare feet and it was a dirty, dusty, dry climate and so when you came in the house, your feet were dirty. Like when my son comes in from playing outside with no shoes on. And so what do you do? Well, that's a good way to serve and honor one another. There's nothing wrong with still doing that today. I just don't think that's prescriptive. Does that make sense? Maybe there's other ways to serve each other in that way uh, in our culture. A third one. So we've talked about uh, consider the literature type and uh, consider culture, but also a third one to ask is an important one. What does the rest of scripture say? What's the rest of the Bible say? Is this a, a normative thing? Does this always happen everywhere? Or is this a unique situation at a unique time and a unique place and it's happening for a unique reason? Um, well, let's consider uh, the end of this passage this morning, right? We read that, um, and, and just consider, is it descriptive or prescriptive? We read in verse 16 that they were bringing people out and, and all those afflicted with unclean spirits, they were all healed, every single one of them, all of them. Throughout the New Testament, if we compare scripture to scripture, we see people getting healed. We see them being healed spiritually, physically, uh, in miraculous ways. We really see it, especially in the book of Acts. We see it in Jesus's ministry. And in Jesus's ministry, it was to prove that he really was God. However, as you work through the New Testament, not everyone gets healed. If this is prescriptive, why wouldn't everyone get healed? Give you some examples. Uh, Paul, while he heals a man in Lystra in Acts 14, later he writes to a young pastor named Timothy and he says, hey Tim, 1 Timothy 5, if you're curious, uh, he says, hey, you might wanna drink a little wine, use a little wine for your upset stomach and your illness, your common and uh, repeated frequent illnesses. Why didn't Paul just heal him? Why not just heal him? If, that's, if this is prescriptive, that's what he should have done, right? Or how about uh, 2 Timothy chapter four, Paul is telling Timothy where he's heading. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving and I left, uh, I left this guy, uh, Trophimus, I left him because he was ill. And so I left him back in Miletus where he was. Why wouldn't he heal him? Or how about Paul himself? He writes in 2 Corinthians that he has a thorn in the flesh and in Galatians, he talks about a physical bodily ailment. Well, why wouldn't he just heal himself if this was prescriptive? Do you see? I'm going, I'm kind of uh, uh, elaborating and uh, exhausting the point a little bit, but I want you to see there's, there's ways to determine is this prescriptive or descriptive as you're studying God's word. 
And generally, especially in Acts, most of it is descriptive. So with that in mind, let's read this again, describing what happened. Acts chapter five, starting in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were together in Solomon's portico. They, they gathered together. We can say, hey, we should gather together. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them, the apostles, they held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were headed to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets. They laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns all around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now again, another, just one more piece here. I think this is descriptive. It's, it's proving that what Jesus began, the apostles are continuing. Compare this to Mark chapter six. Just listen to this, Mark six, verse 54, describing Jesus's ministry. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Jesus and they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people out of their beds, wherever they were from. And they brought him to where he was. And, and wherever he came, in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces. They implored him that he, they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. In the same way, they're brought out before Peter. Again, Jesus's ministry is continuing and on the move. And it was a great testimony to God's grace and goodness among people, wasn't it? Now, all the things we see happen, described happen. That's not to say they can't still happen, that we shouldn't even pray for those things to still happen. It's just saying God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty will decide. But let's, let's trust him no matter what, right? And whatever the testimony is, it's curious, all these good things and their testimony of faith, it led to some trouble. And that's what we're gonna unpack in the rest of this passage, the rest of chapter five this morning. It, it really led to quite a bit of trouble. I wonder, um, as they were living out their faith that brought trouble for them, when has your testimony brought trouble for you? You ever had that where your faith has brought some trouble? Could be in a relationship, could be in your family, could be even in your marriage, it could be a lot of different places where, where that can come about. What well, happened here in the early church, and we can learn from their response. After all these things, Luke writes this, he says, but the high priest rose up. Remember, everybody was being healed. That was the last line. And all who were with him, so the high priest, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. They put them in the public prison. Uh, the high priest and uh, those with him, it would have made up the, the Sanhedrin, about 70 people, uh, 70 men, and uh, notice they were jealous. That word there underneath it is zealous. They were zealous to stop this Jesus movement. They were so zealous that weeks prior they had murdered Jesus on the cross. And now they're going, uh, they thought that would put an end to it, but clearly it hasn't. So now they're going after his followers. And uh, their jealousy was a symptom, I think too, by the way, just as a side, of their insecurity have you noticed that sometimes the harshest, most demanding leaders are often the most insecure ones? Maybe trying to, to prove something by their harshness. Um, 
because they find their identity not in who they are in Christ, but in what they do for him. That's bad news, friends. That's a good reminder for all of us not to find our identity in what we do, even in ministry, but to find it in who Jesus says we are and to rest in that. So they were filled with jealousy though and they, they arrested the apostles. They put them in prison and these guys were getting in trouble, but it, it was for the right reasons. It, it wasn't like, you know, four or five-year-old Josh spitting root beer barrels off the balcony at the basketball game. These were the right reasons to get in trouble, weren't they? They, they, were, they were doing things for the Lord. They were honoring him. They were healing people. They were bringing hope. People were getting saved. You know, as a Christian, your testimony can get you into trouble for a lot of different reasons. Make sure it's the right ones. Make sure it's the right ones. Because the truth is, your testimony can get you into trouble for the wrong reasons as well when you testify to who Jesus is. For example, uh, Peter writes this to a group that is suffering for their faith. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Paul writes, uh, to, to Timothy, again, um, he writes that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. You know, uh, as a follower of Jesus, one way you can get yourself in trouble is uh, you need to remember you're sent to love people and win people, not arguments, not points. So when I follow Jesus, even though what I say might be right, if I say it in the wrong way or with the wrong motivation or in the wrong tone, all I'm gonna do is push people farther away, aren't I? Yeah, speak the truth, but do it how? With grace and in great love. So you can be right, but you may still need to apologize for the way you came across or the way you said it or the attitude behind it. Uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Don't, don't win arguments, win people. Be kind to everyone. Be able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Friends, if you're gonna get in trouble, get in trouble for the right reasons. William Barclay said this, he said, the way to spread Christianity, the best way is to be a Christian. Here's what he means by that. He goes on, he writes, Jesus sends us out not to argue men into Christianity, still less to threaten them into it, but to attract them into it, to live so that its fruits might be so wonderful that others will desire him for themselves. You might be right, don't get in trouble just for being right. Make sure it's the right reasons. And by the way, similarly, don't seek out trouble. It's not real bright just to go picking fights. You're just kind of a bully. But at the same time, don't be surprised when they come. Don't seek it, but expect it. Don't play the martyr and go out seeking to be persecuted, right? Paul says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone, everyone. But at the same time, expect that you're gonna face some opposition if you really follow Jesus. Indeed, Paul writes again to Timothy, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. Now, sometimes we might think of persecution uh, simply as physical persecution, but that clearly, I, I, don't, I don't think though probably many or any of us have faced it in that way, even though we have brothers and sisters around the world who do. But there is an element of persecution that's not simply physical, but even verbal and emotional and in other ways. In fact, Jesus said this, he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There's an aspect of it that is simply uh, in terms of, of words and of actions, not simply physically. Notice uh, on Jesus' account here though, persecuted because of him, not because uh, we picked a fight. Peter tells us the same thing. Expect persecution if we follow Jesus. He said, loved ones, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Like something strange is happening, happening to you. It's, it's come to test you. But insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're gonna see Peter suffer for Christ here at the end of this passage this morning. So he knows what he's talking about. If you're insulted, he says even, because he's writing here in 1 Peter, not to people who are being persecuted physically, but mostly just in other ways. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Get in trouble for the right reasons, he's saying. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he goes on a little later in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So suffer for the right reasons. Don't seek it, but don't be surprised by it either. Expect it. And when your testimony gets you in trouble, the good news, friends, is that you can still boldly and joyfully proclaim Jesus. We'll see the apostles do that here in a moment. Let's, let's keep reading. Let's go back to 17 and keep reading. But the, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And he said, uh, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. This is the first of three prison breaks in the book of Acts. In the next one, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 12, uh, an angel uh, shows up to rescue Peter out of prison and Peter doesn't wake up after he shines a light in his face, so he kicks him and wakes him up, tells him to get up and get going. In chapter 16, Paul's in prison and there's an earthquake and uh, he's rescued, but told to stay there as a witness. In this case, the angel tells him, hey, get up, go back, keep preaching. They had been threatened. They had been arrested twice now. And yet uh, they go back. They're to go back and speak the words of this life, of, of salvation, of, of resurrection. Part of the reason the Sadducees couldn't stand uh, what they were teaching about Jesus having raised from the grave is they didn't believe in the resurrection. And ironically, they also didn't believe in angels. And an angel is the one who rescues them and gets them out of prison. 
Well, when they heard it, they obeyed right away. They, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to teach. So friends, you can boldly and joyfully proclaim Jesus. In this case, they do it with their mouths. You can do it in the words that you speak. But again, speak, them with, speak the truth with grace, with gentleness, with love, right? But they, they, they preach and... At, well, now Luke takes us back to the scene inside where the trial's gonna take place. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the Senate of the people of Israel, that's about 70 people they called together. I told you earlier the Sanhedrin, and they sent to the prison to have them brought for trial. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in prison. So they returned and they reported, uh, we found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found nobody inside. Some of you are old enough to remember the OJ trial and just the, the incredible uh, spectacle it was in our nation, right? Well, uh, it was on TV 24 seven. I mean, it was the start of a lot of those things. And uh, imagine for a moment, if, if you can remember some of that, this huge trial that everybody's watching on TV and uh, the scene is set and Judge Ito's on the bench and uh, everybody's in the courtroom, jury's ready, they call to bring OJ in, and so the bailiff goes to get him, and it's, there's a delay, and what's going on? Where is he? And he comes running back in, and he's like, we got a problem. The guards are in place, the doors are locked, but when we open them, he's gone. Don't know where he is. Can you imagine the chaos and the spectacle that would have created? Well, I would submit to you that that's kind of the scene here. It's a big trial. There's 70 of them waiting for these guys to be brought in. And when uh, the bailiff or whoever that goes out to get them and brings them back in and he runs in, he's like, they're gone. I mean, the doors were locked, the guards were there. I don't know what happened. Now, when uh, the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, the captain of the temple, of the temple guard, he's kind of second in command of the high priest, they were greatly perplexed about him, which you can imagine, I mean, because professional guards don't regularly lose prisoners, <laughs> let alone with the door still being locked and everybody in their place. They're wondering, what is this gonna come to? What happened? And then somebody else comes running in and they're like, look, the, the men whom you put in prison, they're, they're standing in the temple teaching the people the very thing you arrested them for. They're back at it in the same place. So uh, this time then, the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force this time, for they were afraid of being stoned by all the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them. And, and notice, he says, uh, hey, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Notice they don't say Jesus, they just say this name. We strictly charged you not to do this. And they had, if you remember, earlier in the book, multiple times they had threatened him. Yet here you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Well, it was on them, truthfully. And so uh, Peter answered. Peter answered and uh, he said this, we must obey God rather than men. 
we must obey God rather than men. I don't know who's calling, but maybe to support, uh, support Peter here. We must obey God rather than men. You know, there's, the scripture's clear that you're to uh, obey authority. We all are. We're to pay our taxes. That God's given us authority for good things in our life, for our protection and for goodness. But there are times where if an authority contradicts what God has clearly said for us to do, not just if it's a nuisance or a frustration, but if it clearly violates God's word, then we're to appeal to God and obey him, not men, right? Well, in this case, they were told, uh, don't preach about Jesus. Well, what was Jesus' last words? Go make disciples, tell everybody about me. (laughs) They couldn't not do that. They're like, we have to obey God rather than men. And and then he goes on and Peter is speaking on their behalf, says the the God of our fathers, he, he raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, I have a sense here uh, that Peter wasn't just preaching with you know, fire and brimstone, just letting him have it. I just have a sense he was pretty controlled, pretty measured in the way that he says these things. He says, God exalted him. I'll explain why in a moment. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Here's why I think this. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In other words, so that you could be forgiven having hung him on the tree. It's forgiveness for you, is what he tells them. For Israel, you imagine? And he says, and we're, we're witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him and turn to him. You could turn. Now, that's conjecture on my part, exactly the tone, but it's just this, the sense I have as he preaches this and even offers salvation to them. He, he was bold and joyful with his mouth. But the apostles were also bold and joyful proclaiming Jesus with their lives. Let's keep reading and see what happens. When, when they heard this, when the religious leaders heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them unbelievable that they would talk about this, that uh, we're guilty of his death, that we need to repent. And while they wanted to kill him, there was a Pharisee though, an unlikely hero here who steps up in Peter and the apostles' defense in the council, a, a, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. He was a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. And he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a while. Notice he was a Pharisee. Most of the guys on the council at this time are Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. But Gamaliel is a Pharisee. In fact, he shows up later in the book of Acts. Paul, the apostle Paul studied under Gamaliel. And uh, he's a little more measured. And it's not clear whether he sympathized with uh, the apostles or not. We don't really know. Uh, But here's what he said to them after they were put outside. He says, uh, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. And he goes on in verses 36 and 37. He goes, uh, for before these days, a guy named Thutis rose up. Remember him? He led a rebellion and it just kind of fizzled out. And so did all his followers. And then Judas the Galilean and everything with him kind of fizzled out and all his followers are gone. And 
So my recommendation is what he says in light of that is in the present case, I just tell you, keep away from these guys, leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail just like the other ones did. But he says, and he prophesies here a little bit unknowingly, if it's of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Pretty strong words. They would be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them, meaning they flogged them. There was a provision in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, uh, as a punishment, a person, a man could be flogged uh, 40 times. And so uh, to keep from going over 40, they would always do 39. Uh, Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He says, I was lashed 40 times less one. And uh, they would time to a post and lash their back twice and then their chest once and in that order until 39 lashes. And he charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let him go. I mentioned they were faithful with their mouths, boldly and joyfully proclaiming Jesus, right? What about their lives? What are they gonna do after this? What would you do? I mean, are they gonna start a Facebook group? Tell everybody all the horrible things that happened and post about it on social media? Are they gonna start a blog? Are they gonna, what are they gonna do? Are they gonna lead a rebellion to get these guys out of office and oust them? Look at what they do. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced in it. They were bold and they were joyful and in their joy, they were more bold. They left the presence of the council rejoicing to suffer dishonor and every day in the temple and from house to house, they, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. They kept living it out. When they faced that opposition, something the Holy Spirit helped them and they actually had joy in that. Have you ever experienced that? How? How? I mean, uh, when your testimony brings trouble, I'm up here telling you, you can boldly and joyfully proclaim Jesus. How? Here's how. Because God's with you. Remembering God's with you. That you're not on your own. You're not alone. You, you may feel alone and, and by all even uh, visible and physical realities, you may be very much alone in your faith, in your family, in your workplace, whatever that is. But you're not alone. God is with you as you honor him and follow him. It's, it's his mission. It's Jesus' mission. Uh, look at uh, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus came and he said to them, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Kind of Jesus saying, hey, you might wanna pay attention. I've been given all authority. So I'm telling you, go therefore, in light of that authority, I'm telling you, go. Make disciples of every nation 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you about loving God with your whole heart and loving others like you love yourself. And then he leaves them with a promise. He says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See, uh, when we live out his mission, we can trust in his promise. And so when your testimony brings trouble, you can still boldly and joyfully proclaim him with your mouth and with your life, knowing that he's with you. Jesus said, behold, pay attention. I'm with you, how often? Always. Even to the end. Even to the very end, I'm with you. In Joshua, I believe this is Jesus, the commander of the Lord's armies, appearing to Joshua in the Old Testament. And he tells Joshua, he says, haven't I commanded you? Be strong, be bold, be courageous. Don't be dismayed, don't be terrified, don't be afraid, Josh. I'm with you. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or in Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be what? With you. Could be the waters of persecution, could just be the waters of life is hard right now. I'll be with you. I'm not gonna leave you. You can still have joy. You can still have joy. Even in the book of Acts, we're gonna see it. The Lord says to Paul, he says, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep speaking, don't be silent. I'm with you. I'm with you. Friend, when your testimony brings trouble, you might even just say when life brings trouble, you can boldly and joyfully proclaim Jesus. Do you know why? Because God's with you and he loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. And so uh, my challenge to you this week is uh, to remember those promises. You know, there's four of those verses I just shared that are outlined on your handout from uh, from Joshua 1, from Matthew 28, from Isaiah 43, Acts 18. Write one of those out. Put it on a sticky note. Put it in front of you this week and be reminded God is with you, whatever's going on. Pray for God. Uh, look at it and say, God, this is your promise. Make that tangible to me in my life. Encourage one another with it. Don't lose sight of the fact that he's with you. Amen? Let me pray.